Amen. Take a seat, everyone. Take a seat. We're beginning a new series this morning. Um, and uh, I want you to cast your mind back to the dark, dark days of last year when we entered lockdown. Do you remember those dark days? There was a few jokes going around at the time. I remember one of them was all of a sudden... Uh, all the ministers in New Zealand are televangelists overnight, right? Because we all had to stream our services online. I remember the pressure of coming up with a streaming service uh, in three days, I think uh, it was, before we, before we weren't allowed out of our houses. Um, it was pretty intense. There was another joke that was going around at the time uh, a couple of weeks in, and it was about New Zealand's favorite reality TV show. Do you remember that one? It was the one o'clock news update that had the highest ratings of all TV shows in New Zealand when um, then the Prime Minister and the Director General of Health would get up and they would tell us what was happening and how many cases and what we were doing and what the plan was. And there were these proclamations from the throne of, uh, of New Zealand, you know? Um, and that was happening all around the world, right? And, and it still happens every now and then. Um, I, I go to the gym irregularly. And uh, on the TV in the morning uh, when I can get myself out of bed and I'm, I'm trying to walk on the treadmill and I'm looking at the TV, and I see in the UK they're still doing this, right? They still have the, um, the Prime Minister there and he's giving the updates and the proclamations uh, of what's happening. And I remember the day that we went from level four to level three, you know, the announcement and all the texts going around of everyone like, I've got to be able to eat takeaways again. I've got to be able to go and get coffee and have my chips and my McDonald's and stuff like that. And so there's all this sort of proclamations going around last year and, and, and to some extent still going on in different parts of the world. But these things happened in the ancient world as well, except they were a lot more frequent because they had a public square, right? A, a place in the center of town where you could go and you could make proclamations. And I think we often think of like the town cry, you know, hear ye, hear ye, and they have the the thing that they're supposed to read out. But this, anyone in the ancient world could do a public proclamation. All you had to do was stand on this corner and just yell, right? That was pretty easy. Um, And that was normal. And uh, what we are doing is we are exploring seven of the public proclamations that the church made um, sharing the good news with the world. Okay, we're going to explore seven different sermons that are presented publicly um, to the world and just see how they shared the good news with the world, what it was that they said, what it was that anchored their faith and their news to the world, and how we might uh, do that ourselves. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the movies, you've had an experience, uh, the movies, or you've, had a, you've gone on holiday and you want to tell someone about it um, because it was just so good. And you go and you try and tell them and you try and explain it and it just becomes one of those, oh, I guess you had to be there moments. Have you guys had that? Like you try and tell someone, they're just looking at you like, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I guess you had to be there. Well, people take this to the extreme um, on the internet. Of course, everything gets taken to the extreme on the internet. And every now and then, Uh, On my social media feed, I'll come across someone who has done this little challenge, which is called Explain a Film Plot Badly. Have you guys ever heard of that? No? Okay, well, here's some examples. Here's some examples. Talking Frog convinces son to kill his dad, right? That's The Empire Strikes Back, okay? So uh, that's an example, okay? Got another one here. Got a few of them. Group spends nine hours returning jewelry, Okay, Lord of the Rings, okay. Uh, everyone tries the ice bucket challenge, <laughs> okay. 
Titanic, okay? Here's one for you, Matt Neary, A Series of Naps. <laughs> Inception, in case you don't know that film, right? That's Inception. Okay, here, depressed widowed father teams up with mentally challenged woman to find his disabled son, right? <laughs> Finding Nemo, <laughs> okay? Oh, it's very good. And since we started with a Star Wars one, we're going to end with a Star Wars one. Father reunites with long-lost son, wants him to take over the family business. <laughs> okay, so those are very funny, very creative, explain a film plot badly. Uh, and, but those are kind of, I guess you had to be there moments, because without context, if you haven't seen that movie, you don't know what it's talking about. Like when I talked about Inception, like some of you haven't seen Inception, like, well, what's that? What's that about? You need the context. And sometimes we can feel like we're doing this with the gospel, Right, We can feel like uh, we've got this wonderful news, and we've just spent last eight weeks looking at Jesus and talking about who he said he was and the claims that he made and all of that sort of stuff. But when it comes to sharing it, where do you start? How do you kind of build the bridge? You get tongue-tied. What do you say? How do you, can you come on too strong? What's, what's, what's important? What's not important? And we can feel like we've explained the gospel badly, right? <laughs> Hashtag explain the gospel poorly. Um, like these people who have explained movie plots badly, although they did it on purpose. Well, this series that we're starting today, the Proclaim series, we're going to be looking at how we might uh, share and what the church did and how it might uh, apply to our sharing of the gospel and how it might apply to our life. So we're going to start in the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible and you want to uh, go there, we're going to go to Acts 2, and that's where we're going to be starting this morning. The, the text will be on the screen, but I know uh, some of you might want to read it in front of you. And we're going in Acts chapter 2, and this is the first sermon, gospel sermon, that was ever preached. And we're going to look at it um, about what Peter says as Peter, the Apostle Peter who preaches it, and what he says and uh, how he brings it into land. So the, the, the sermon takes up most of Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the last part of the sermon because we want to see how he kind of lands it and where he lands his, his, his gospel message. So here we go. Acts chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 22, okay? So this is kind of halfway through the, through the sermon, but we'll, uh, we'll pick it up here. Fellow Israelites. So you remember day of Pentecost, right? And, uh, and he's preaching in front of a whole bunch of people. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, Wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. 
God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that, this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Okay, so this is uh, preached on what we often call the birthday of the church. It's when the Holy Spirit descended on the believers in the upper room and uh, empowered them to share the gospel of Jesus. And they spill out onto the streets and uh, they're kind of talking and all preaching in lots of different languages uh, to the people there. And everyone thinks they're drunk. And Peter says, no, it's too early in the morning. We're not day drinkers. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit. And he preaches the sermon. And this is how he ends that sermon. Uh, it's the, on the day of Pentecost, which gets its name from the fact that it is 50 days after. Uh, it's also called the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the last festival. Uh, Pentecost just means 50 And uh, it was a solemn feast, which means that uh, all of the male Jews were required to to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to attend. So Peter's speaking to people from all over the Roman Empire. Population of the city grew hugely because everyone was flooding in for the festival of weeks. And they heard the gospel, and then there was a great opportunity for them to take the gospel out into the empire as they uh, go back to their homes. So how does Peter structure his gospel appeal. Well, the first thing he, he appeals to is the work of Jesus among the people. Now, you think about it, it's only been a few weeks since Jesus was crucified and the resurrection happened, um, about 40 days or so, and he'd been ministering in the country in and around um, Galilee for three years at least. Got a significant enough following that the rulers uh, plotted to kill him. So many of the people who were listening who were in Jerusalem uh, would remember the events of the crucifixion. They may have heard Jesus teaching in the temple. They may have been delivered uh, or healed or even fed by him as he fed um, people out in the wilderness, you know, with feeding of the 5,000. So they have memory of Jesus' life and teaching. And so Peter appeals to that memory. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. So he's, he's going, like, guys, you know about Jesus. You remember what he did. This is, this is the common memory that these people have. Now, the people that we're talking to today about Jesus uh, often have no frame of reference at all. They're not alive at the time of Jesus. At least I don't think anyone in the world today fits that description. So no one has first-hand testimony of Jesus in that sense. But even less today in New Zealand, most people outside of the church hardly have any knowledge of God other than some vague statements like, well, God is love and don't judge. Those are about the only two Bible verses that people know. So how do we bridge that gap? How do we uh, point to the work of Jesus Well, we do that by pointing to Jesus' work in our own lives. In one sense, that's what Peter's doing here. He's pointing to these 
uh, events of Jesus teaching, and he's saying, look at what Jesus did amongst you. Remember what Jesus had done when you encountered him. He's pointing to the work of Jesus in freeing people from the bondage of evil spirits, of hunger, of sickness, of all sorts of things. And we can do the same thing as well. We can tell other people what Jesus has done for us. We can say, once I was like this, whatever that is, once I was full of anger and bitterness, once I was full of envy, once I was a thief, once I was in bondage to some addiction or, or whatever it was, I had no meaning in life, but now I encountered Jesus and now after Jesus has done his work in my life, I'm like this, however that journey might look for you. You may be full of peace, you may be generous, you may be freed from an addiction or have purpose and meaning that gives you motivation. How has Jesus impacted your life? It's like that song, right? Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found, right? One of the greatest words, uh, theological words in the Bible is the word but, right? And it happens in, um, in Ephesians 2 a lot. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but now you are alive in Christ Jesus, or God has made you alive. I once was blind, but now I see. And in doing so, we're not boasting about what we've done. We're not going, ah, I'm better than you because I overcame this thing. What we're doing is we're using this as a way to point to Jesus. That's the point of the gospel. It doesn't um, point us. Uh, it doesn't point to us. We don't use this as a way of saying, well, you know, I've, done, I've overcome this addiction or I've, I've, uh, I was angry and now I'm no longer angry. I'm very kind and gentle. I'm such a wonderful person. Look at what I've done. That's not what it's for, is to say, look at this work that Jesus has done in my life. Without Jesus, this is what I was like. All right? There's this movie uh, called Night and Day with Tom Cruise. <laughs> And he plays a spy, and he, he has this uh, other character who he, he's trying to protect. And he says, look, your chances of survival, with me, without me, right? With me, without me, right? With Jesus, without Jesus, right? That's kind of what we're saying, right? This is how I was. This is how I am now with Jesus, okay? Jesus is the initiator, the author, the one who does all the work. We just accept his work in our lives. All you're doing is just relaying the truth. This is what I was like but now am like this after I met Jesus. And Peter, the apostle, does this when he writes his letter to the church that he writes his letter to in First Peter. He reminds them, once you were not a people, right? you weren't anyone, you were apart from God's promise, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy. So once you were like this, but now you have received mercy. And so this is our story too. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. People are crying out to hear authentic stories like this. This is what I was like, but now with Jesus, I am like this. The second thing that uh, Peter does is he grounds all of his messages in the fact, the fact of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? He, he says it a couple of times. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people, lawless means non-Jewish people, to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And then later, towards the end, he says, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out 
what you both see and hear. He reminds the people that he, along with the others who they see, are witnesses to this fact of Jesus' resurrection. Now remember, under Jewish law, you only needed two or three witnesses to establish the truth of a matter. Here, Peter's like, look, it's 120 of us. We all saw him raised to life after we found the empty tomb. So he's more than established the, um, the plateau or the, the, the standard. He's met the standard for establishing truth under the Jewish law. He tells them what he has seen. He says, this is what we have seen. We are witnesses of this. It's not something they make up. It's not like a fairy tale or something that they made to make themselves feel better. It's not um, something they're like, oh, look, Jesus said he was going to come back. We'll just, you know, say that he came back because it makes us feel better about it, um, that they're trying to live out this myth or this fairy tale. I watched a, a show uh, a few days ago, and one of the storylines on there, it was a, a crime show, and one of the storylines was about a person who found who was um, having uh, delusions, and they had discovered a science fiction book, and they had convinced themselves that this science fiction book was a prophecy about the future, and they were the chosen one in the book, and they were living out this book as if it was a map for their real life. And everyone was like, well, obviously that's that's a delusion because people don't <laughs> live out books like that, or they shouldn't do that sort of thing. There's another great movie. Lots of movie references this morning. Um, has anyone seen this movie, Onward, Pixar movie? No? Yes? No? I have. It's a very good movie. I like it. It's great. But the plot is driven by these two brothers. They have to go on a quest, right? But the quest is guided by a role-playing game that one of them plays uh, for fun. And somehow the clues are supposed to correspond to real life and they get into a lot of odd situations because they're following a board game, right? A role-playing game. But this is what people often think that Christians do, right? We've got this book that's really old and it has, it's not really true. It's kind of mythological, but somehow some of it sort of happens to correspond to real life. And so you get yourself into some strange situations. But, you know, eventually you get there, right? But the truth is that our faith is actually based on an historical event, an actual historical event. The tomb of Jesus, the empty tomb, is one of the most verified, testified to, um, attested events in the ancient world, right? And it's, it's that way because we have the Bible as evidence, but the Bible is the most scrutinized ancient book in uh, in history, because everyone goes, ah, it's obviously not true, so we're going to study it to prove that it's not true. But funnily enough, it's held up to all of that scrutinization. Um, so we have that as a reference, and we have four independent uh, witnesses to that event, but we also have external biblical evidence, at least another four um, references to the fact that Jesus existed, that he died, or he's crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he died, and that his tomb was found empty by his followers three days later. So Peter uses scripture, and he quotes scripture to prove that this was always part of God's plan, and you guys know the tomb was empty, um, and we can't always do that because people don't uh, take scripture as authoritative these days. You can't claim the Bible because they go, wow, that's just Bible, I don't believe that. But we have other historical documents that attest to that. Each of the Gospels include the fact of the resurrection. Each of the Gospel messages that we will see 
in the book of Acts includes the fact of the resurrection. And if you want to see how those, uh, those four facts that the histo- all historians, whether they are, you know, super conservative, fundamental Christian or atheist, agnostic, anti-Christian people, they all agree on those four facts, right? That Jesus died, that he was buried in a rich man's tomb, that the tomb was found empty three days later, and that his followers believed enough that he had risen from the dead to risk their lives and uh, to go around preaching that. Those four facts are all historically verified by any scholar that you'll come across, well, 99% of them. We did a, we did a sermon on that uh, last year sometime, so you can look that up. And if you can't find it, I will send it to you. Uh, just let me know. Um, so then the third thing that Peter does is he uh, tells them, they killed Jesus, right? That's what he says to them. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is important, right? Uh, Because uh, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, one thing that Mel Gibson made sure to include, I'm sure you know this bit of trivia, was a cameo, director's cameo. And it's right here. That's Mel Gibson's hand right there. Okay, holding the nail. And uh, someone asked him, why did you do this? And he said, well, I understand that is my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, that I'm at fault for what happened to that, the Son of God. He understands that it was him, in a very real sense, who drove the nails into Jesus' hand. And he stands in for all of us there. By putting himself in there, he stands in for us and it's like the song that says, you know, how deep the Father's love for us. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It's not just the Romans that killed Jesus. You can't just say, oh, well. Jesus died because those Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross. They beat him. They, they, they scourged him. They flogged him. They made him walk up the hill. They nailed him to the cross, and then they stabbed him in the side. It's all their fault. No, it's, it's my fault as well. It's all of our faults because uh, Jesus came for that purpose, to die for our sin, because we have all sinned. We've all turned away from God. We've all gone our own way, and we have all killed the Son of God. That's what Peter's talking about, and that's what he's leading up to. That's his point. We are all guilty. This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised him to life. And so people go, man, we killed the Messiah. What do we do? And Peter says, repent. Turn back to God. Paul puts it like this in Romans 10. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We turn back to God. We acknowledge him as Lord. We say, you know, we confess Jesus is Lord. He is ultimate. He is the authority. He is the one who is above all. And we believe in the resurrection. You see how important the resurrection is for the early church? It's not like believe that Jesus died for your sins only. It's believe that God raised him up to life again because that shows that The debt actually was paid, that his death was enough, and that death no longer has any hold over him. I heard one lady say that she's a Christian because 
she's convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. Not, not for any other mystical reason or anything like that. She just said, look, I have looked at the evidence and I'm convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that's true, and I believe it is, it makes all the difference in the world. Because then everything else that he said is also true. And all of the claims that we've looked at, you know, all of the I am statements, where Jesus claims to be God, where he claims to be Savior, where he claims to be the Creator, where he claims all of these things, those are all true. And so what other option is there? If that's true, and God raised him from dead, and I'm stuck in my sin unless I believe in him, then I need to repent. Martin Luther uh, wrote the first of his 95 theses. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. A continual, now this is not like a, a flogging of yourself, you know, this is not a, a beating up of yourself, but this is a continual turning towards Jesus, looking to Jesus as the foundation of our lives. And so as we uh, close this morning, how might you turn towards Jesus this morning? How might you take the message of Jesus and the truth of the gospel and turn towards Jesus this morning? How might you take that message and share it with those around you? How might you encourage people with the story of your own life? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was, and then I met Jesus, and now I am. How might you point out all that God has done in your life? And remember that everything is grace. And so in our lives, everything that we point to is God's gift and God's grace to us. So we're going to respond this morning. But let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful for your act of salvation, for your life, for your death, for your burial, and especially for your resurrection, that you were raised to life, conquering sin, conquering death, showing that the sacrifice has been paid, that there is no more debt to be repaid, Lord, that you have paid it all. And that we can live in that new life by confessing and believing, turning to you and walking in your ways, Lord. We thank you and praise you for that. We're just so grateful. And so we ask that you would really cement that in our hearts. Speak to us as we respond this morning. How might we show that we, uh, that we love you, Lord? How might we return to you? What areas of our lives can we submit to your Lordship? We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen.